I am anticipating what we will learn this morning, um, and I'm always thankful that Ed prays and prepares in that way. So I want to start just with, with a review, and uh, remember, as I said in the email I sent out, I'm trying to keep this before us, we are, we are pouring the footings and uh, sometimes it's easy for us as, a, as Christians and as a church to want to get to the superstructure right away, to get to this other stuff and, and not to have the footings and the foundation on which it grows. And so that's what we're doing. Um, this, is, this is the harder work. And yet, it's, and yet, honestly, it's the most rewarding work. It's the most rewarding. So... We started out in the introduction with what is worship. And I think, we, okay, I'll tell you what to go to, when to go to a slide. So you can go to a slide, the next, the first slide. So we looked at the heart of worship, which is the creature, everything the creature owes to God, the creator. Everything he owes to God. Then we looked in particular at internal worship and external worship cannot emphasize how important it is that we understand that biblical distinction. So internal worship is, is all of life. When you go to work, when you go to bed, when you eat your breakfast, um, when you play, uh, it's, it should be internal worship. That's common to all of life. External worship are those intrinsic acts of worship. That's the holy times. Okay, so in particular, prayer is an act of worship. Then we took it a step further and we looked at private uh, external temple worship, and then there's external private worship. So, um, you know, the Bible talks about the hour of prayer. We we have that song that we sing, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Uh, It comes from that idea in Scripture of where there was the hour of prayer when people would pray. Uh, privately, not just at the temple, but even at home. Uh, there's postures of prayer, where you lift up your hands, right? Where you kneel down on, on, on the ground. And so, so those are specific, set-aside, holy times of external worship. Um, but then there's even the doubly holy and the doubly set-apart temple worship where we gather together at a specific time, on a specific day, as it happens, uh, to do specific things. And that is external temple worship. We said we, we, we need to watch out for egalitarianism, where we, we treat all times alike, and all things are alike, and there's no difference. And so we, we have this casual approach to things. Now, I've picked a lot on coffee recently. Um, let, let, me, let me pick on coming late to church. Let me pick on, on not checking if I need to go to the bathroom before the service. Now, now watch out. Because um, one of our children gets up every Sunday morning and leaves the service. Right? So, and, I, and with my permission. Right? Now that's because there's a need for that. So, you see, I'm not, I am not interested in anyone else judging you or in me judging you or in you judging me. I'm interested in you, for yourself, 
thinking through what a theology of worship means for your approach to this time. If someone comes in late every single week, are you going to judge them because I just said something about coming late? You're a sinner if you do. Right? And so am I. Uh, Because there might be a reason someone comes late every single week. There might be a reason. You don't know. I'm talking to those who do come late every week. If there is such a person, I don't know who they are, honestly. I don't have a list in my mind. I don't even have a name in my mind. But... But, but I, would, I would challenge you, what does your theology of worship mean? And this, the sacredness of this time for being here on time. Uh, some of us just have smaller bladders, right? You get older, and, it, and things happen. There might be medical issues. So if you're getting up to go to, go to the bathroom, no one's judging anyone. But for me, and now for our children, I'll tell you for me, I always made it, you know, if it, I mean, they had to go pretty bad. And then we also made sure, okay, that's not going to happen next week. So we go before the service. Now, I don't say that's not going to happen next week, you know, in this, this mean way. No, we just talk about, hey, that was, a, that was that's not going to happen next week. That's Andrew and I's decision. Okay. Now, when we want to communicate that to our children, we try to communicate that in terms of look at the value of this time. How do we want to treat this time? Now, those are the those are the those are the uh, surfacey things that, nevertheless, we ought to root in a theology of worship. Now, the positive side of this is what we really want to come to. Because once we're all sitting here, and if we, don't, if we can avoid getting up to leave, we, we work at that. Uh, if we can get here on time, we absolutely are here on time. So let's say we got here on time, we're sitting here, and we sit here through the whole service. Well, what have we gained? Not necessarily anything, Right? And so now at this point, the positive aspect of this is when I understand the holiness of this time and the sacredness of what we are gathered to do together, um, I, I approach it with a whole new attitude, right? Uh, it, it's my approach to it. It's my understanding of what's actually happening here. What is this? And that's what we've been trying to look at in the last two weeks, primeval worship. Primeval worship, we looked at Cain and Abel, we looked at the line of Seth, and we looked at Noah. And we saw that calling upon the name of the Lord, calling upon the name of Yahweh, is a formal expression for what worship is. You want to know what worship is in its external way? It is a calling upon his name. So what do we gather here to do? That's it. Call upon his name. Invoke his name. And we saw it's connected with offerings and an altar. Uh, A formal... um, We also looked at natural worship, which... Neil looked at this morning with us in Sunday school. All men know they're obligated to pray. Everyone knows they ought to pray. Even the most pagan person knows they ought to be praying. And calling upon the name of the Lord. They know that because of the law of their creation. But we need religious worship. 
No one, no one knows we ought to be worshiping like we're doing here unless God reveals that to us. And so God must reveal his worship to us. We don't just be like, well, I know what worship is. I know what to do. I know how to do it. So God will be happy with whatever I do. No, God has to reveal his worship to us for it to be acceptable and pleasing to him. So worship is not a place for our creative self-expression. Worship is not a place for us to get inventive. We are never more dependent on God than we are in worship. And if there's ever one place that we tend to think God is, if ever, if at any time dependent on us, it's in worship. Because now we're giving him something, as it were, he needs. Which, which we know is not true, but it, it filters into our thinking. So we come then to practical, uh, patriarchal worship. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we looked last week at the name that is called upon. So worship is to call upon the name of the Lord. But now the name that is called upon is is the God revealing himself to us. We cannot call on a name unless that name is being revealed to us. That's impossible. And so true worship can only happen in the context of a dialogue that God initiates We don't initiate in worship. We don't say, you know what, I'm going to go worship God, and I know he was waiting up there for me, and so, God, I'm here now, and I'm going to begin worship. No, no, God initiates. God is the ultimate initiator. God speaks, and in worship, we answer. That's what worship is. And so that's why in worship, we have the preaching. We have the reading of Scripture. And then we have the responding. So what happens here is a dialogue in which God initiates and speaks, and we as his people respond. Now this morning we come, uh, we come to Old Covenant worship. The, now, this is going to be convicting. And it's going to be beautiful. So the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt and the subsequent covenant that God made with them at Sinai are the two events that if you put them together, the exodus from Egypt, they get to Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant. That thing there, that together marks Israel's birth, Israel's creation as a nation. In other words, There was a whole lot of Israelites before that point. And as those who were descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were heirs of the patriarchal promises that we looked at last week. But it wasn't until the covenant at Sinai that all those descendants of Jacob living in Egypt were joined together as a people in covenant with God. When you talk about redemptive history, at this moment, you're talking about a big change. Something big just happened. And so we read in Exodus 19, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be. In and through this covenant, they become a nation. Deuteronomy 7, you are a holy people 
to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So in your handout, nation and people. Those are just humdrum, run-of-the-mill, ordinary, everyday words. But in the Bible, those words become special words. Nation, people are used in the Bible with this specialized sense of a people, a community of people bound together by a common covenantal commitment that we have together to a common covenantal Lord. And yet it's important to remember that this nation and this people didn't exist before Sinai. In other words, there were a whole lot of Jews, there were a whole lot of Israelites living in Egypt, but they, but, and even when they came out of Egypt, they, they were beginning to be formed, but it wasn't until they came to the mountain that the nation and the people came into being. Do you grasp that? That is, that is big. And so what then, we ask, will this new set of circumstances that's never existed before since the creation, what will it mean for worship? We're pouring footings. Now maybe you can start building a superstructure. We haven't introduced any additional parties to the dialogue. It's not like we have a three-way dialogue now, right? Horizontal, we're talking to each other in the community, and we're talking to God. Me and you talking is not worship. The dialogue is vertical. But yet, worship is now fundamentally, in your handout, communal in nature. Now, what's that going to mean practically? We're going to get there, but we see this communal nature of worship, of Old Covenant worship, in several ways. And what I want you to do is have this foundation, because that's what's going to make your, your practice of this time beautiful. So first, the Levites, because in the Old Covenant, they didn't have churches where they all got together every Sunday, right? They didn't even have synagogues. They had one spot. And how often could some people get to that one spot? Well, they were supposed to get there three times a year, right? So what's happening the rest of the year? Well, the Levites were chosen to perform the service of worship at the tabernacle instead of who? All the firstborn, in, all the firstborn males in Israel. And who did the firstborn Israelite males stand for? The whole Nation and people, because Israel is God's firstborn. So Numbers 3, we read this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service. You might remember that word from a week or two ago. 
the service, the worship of the tabernacle. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. And we already know from Exodus 4, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So when God calls the Levites instead of every firstborn male, that symbolizes the whole congregation. The Levites are summing up that whole, whole community. Second, the high priest himself. You might remember when he went into the tabernacle to do the temple worship, he went in always with the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel written upon his shoulders and upon his heart. Communal. They couldn't all be gathered there all the time, but they were all to be represented there in the high priest. So Exodus 28, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord, worship, on his two shoulders for a memorial. And then in Exodus 28, you shall make a breast piece of judgment. You shall mount on it four rows of stones. The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve tribes, according to their names. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place where the rest of them couldn't go for a memorial before the Lord continually. And so what we see is the people, the nation as a whole, all united. They're all united. They're all represented together in the high priest whenever he performs the service of worship at the tabernacle. Now, all of a sudden, we should have a huge problem with our individualistic culture today. This is, this is a stinging rebuke to the individualism of, of Christian worship today. You see how we're taking theology and we're working it to the superstructure. But we need it to be deeply rooted and beautiful. Otherwise, we degenerate into mere legalism. It's this reality that the psalmist celebrates when he says in Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then he describes it, it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. We know this now at Living Word because I've said this a number of times. Uh, even Aaron's beard, the anointing of the high priest, coming down upon the edge of his robes. So we see it in the Levites, we see it in the high priest, this communal nature of worship. And then finally, all the males in Israel, and who did the males represent? The entire people and nation, women and children. They were to appear before the Lord three times a year, all together. So even though they couldn't do it every week, God still said, you need to do this three times a year. Feasts of unleavened bread, Weeks and booths. The psalmist loves to celebrate the rightness and the joy. Now I use both of those words. The rightness and the joy. Sometimes we're like, I want it to be joyful, but I don't want it to be right. Right? 
Or it's right, but I don't get the joy. No, no, it's right and it's joyful. To worship the Lord in the congregation. So Psalm 35, I will, give th- I, I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Now, here's the question. What does all of this mean? What, what does the old covenant mean for worship? What does the covenant mean For worship, it means that worship is now fundamentally communal in nature. So looking ahead to the new covenant, we see the communal nature of worship in your handout fulfilled in this. In the priesthood of all believers. Now you don't, now we're all priests. It's fulfilled in the temple that's now built of living stones. You all are stones making up the temple. And how is this happening? Because we have been united with Jesus. All of us here are united in one person, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And so in him, we are all priests. Not high priests, but priests. And in him, who is God's incarnate temple, Jesus is God's incarnate temple, we are all now living stones making up God's temple. Now, this is the communal nature of worship. It's epitomized in the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Remember, what is worship? It is prayer. It is calling on the Lord's name. And what prayer did Jesus teach us to pray? In your handout, our Father, our Father, give us this day. Forgive us our trespasses. Do not lead us into temptation. I'm praying the Holy Spirit is already doing a work in your heart, whether of conviction or of encouragement and joy. The Apostle Peter sees this communal language of Old Covenant Israel fulfilled in the New Covenant Church. So look, now watch for the language. Coming to him is to a living stone. So Jesus is the living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's temple. For a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy Nation. Nation means community. A people. For God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let's put it this way. If the old covenant worship was communal in a preparatory, a preparatory, in a typological way. It was communal, even though they weren't always all getting together every Sunday. 
Okay, but it was communal, represented in the Levites, in the high priest, and in the three times a year gathering of all the males in Israel. It was communal, but that was preparatory. Then the communal nature of worship, brothers and sisters, it comes into its own and is fully manifested today, now, under the new covenant. What this means and this is where I'm going to lay it going to lay it on the line. This is where it rubber meets the road. It is no longer possible. And I'm not talking about, you know, a lot of times people try to disprove the rule by the exception to the rule. You know what I'm saying? You try to say, well that can't be a rule because there's this exception. But in fact, what does the exception do? It proves the rule. So yes, if you're stuck on a deserted island with no one there, it's fine. But that only proves the rule. Okay. It is no longer possible for you or me to fulfill our obligation of worship to God. Unless that worship is expressed communally. Or we could say, congregationally. You see? Do you see how this is rooted in theology? And a lot of times we talk about church attendance. I hate that phrase. And yet, if we understand what church attendance really is, we will understand why it is not optional for any Christian. So we spoke earlier of the egalitarian spirit of this age. Now we have to confront the individualistic spirit of our Western culture. Obviously, there are many professing Christians today who want to worship God apart from organized religion. And we might be familiar with the argument, well, I can worship God just as well alone in nature as I can in a church building. Now, if we want to answer that in a deep, substantive way, what we say is that that is a denial of the fundamentally communal shape of worship under the Old and New Covenants. Let me ask you, what about virtual worship? Have you heard of virtual worship today? There's no such thing. But let's not even go the virtual worship route. Let's go the live streaming route. No, you know, so when we COVID, of course, has resulted in a lot of live streaming and a lot of people saying, I like live streaming. Let me say this. Temple worship cannot be live streamed. It is theologically, spiritually, physically impossible. Because the temple itself cannot be live streamed. You cannot be live streamed. This cannot be live streamed. And I'm glad that there are those who may be joining us via live stream. But I want to tell you that you're not doing temple worship right now. So 
that's, that's, there's that. What you are doing, (laughs) strange, is, is not temple worship. It is, it is not what God ultimately requires. Now, I'm glad that, that those at home are joining us here because there's, again, we don't judge people, right? Right? So Greg wasn't here last week. We didn't sit around judging Greg for not being here. There's reasons people are not here. And then I'm glad they can join us via the live stream. But I want to just say that live streaming the Sunday morning service is not, is not a second best substitute for temple worship. It's not a second best substitute. It is by definition an entirely different thing. It's something else. Now what is it? You should have the language to explain what it is now. Number one, ideally, it's an expression of internal worship. So, everything you do all of life should be internal worship, right? So when you go to work, it should be internal worship. When you watch a service via live stream, that should be internal worship. When you're washing the dishes with gratefulness as a, and doing it in a, way, in a Christian way, that should be internal worship. Now, is there something more special about live streaming this service than washing the dishes? There is, potentially. To the extent that you are engaging at home in the prayers that you are actually praying yourself, whether you're speaking the prayers or singing along with the prayers, then you are engaging in an act of private, external worship. Which is essentially no different than if you went into your room and shut the door. But maybe it's nice to know that you're doing it at the same time everyone else is doing it. That, that's, that's special. But I want to tell you, there's only one place temple worship can happen. And does God require temple worship? Yes, God requires temple worship. Temple worship is required. It is a requirement. You cannot fulfill your obligations to God of worship apart from temple worship. It cannot happen. And the only place that you can do temple worship is in the physically gathered congregation. I Beautiful? Yes. A rebuke and a conviction? Yes. Therefore, any, any voluntary neglect of Sunday morning worship is a denial of the fundamentally communal shape of worship under the Old and New Covenants. Let us take it a step further so that we know what is at stake. Any voluntary neglect of Sunday morning worship is a denial of the Old and New Covenants themselves. Now, I'm not referring to apostasy. I'm referring to a practical and moral denial. How many times do we deny the gospel every time we sin? Every time we voluntarily neglect the gathering of the church for external temple worship, we are denying the gospel. That is, by definition, a denial 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's the negative side of it. But now I hope you can see that a biblical theology of worship will enable us to make the gathering of the church for worship the highest and the most joyful priority in our week. Now, by the way, when I talked about voluntary neglect, I use that phrase and I leave you to figure out what voluntary neglect is. I'm not going to define voluntary neglect for us all. That might approach legalism. So, are there times when you could have come, but you weighed it and you thought, no. Okay, is that necessarily voluntary voluntary neglect? Not necessarily. I don't know. I'm not, none of us are anyone else's Holy Spirit. But there is a Holy Spirit. Right? And we are all accountable for the living out of a theology of worship. Worship is, second of all, covenantal. Now, we've already seen this. If it's communal, we've already said it's covenantal. But I want to take that one step further. Under the old covenant, worship was covenantal. And what do I mean by saying worship was covenantal? I mean this. Worship was entirely shaped and regulated by the covenant. So the author of Hebrews says, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So we know that, okay, where did you do worship now? At a centralized, specific place, the tabernacle or the temple. Um, When did you engage in external temple worship? At Sabbaths, at feast days, the morning and evening sacrifices. Uh, Who performed the temple worship? Well, there was a specific priesthood, the Levites. And all of that was shaped by the covenant. You see that? So it's through the covenant God regulates and prescribes the worship that is acceptable to him. This helps us to see why what happens when the covenant changes. When the covenant changes, the worship changes. Because worship is covenantal. So we read in John 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Worship is going to change. There's going to be some things change in worship. Hebrews 7. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, that means the covenant, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the covenant is changed, of necessity takes place a change of law, of covenant also. So, here, this is really, 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 really important. Temple worship is covenantal. It is shaped by whichever covenant is in force at the time. So whatever the covenant is at the time, that's the covenant that regulates the worship. Temple worship, therefore, is always, what is worship? It is always the formal maintenance 
Now, you might think of the maintenance supervisor at a grounds, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, anytime you have a relationship, that relationship needs to be maintained. No less so with our relationship with God. And how is that relationship maintained? Worship. And so temple worship is the formal maintenance of and enjoyment of the covenant relationship in covenant dialogue. Remember the word dialogue between God and his people. What happens in temple worship? The covenant relationship is maintained and enjoyed as we dialogue with God who initiates that dialogue with us. In the Bible, how is that covenant relationship described? Always with a variation on these words. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Or the other way around. And so, look at Zechariah 13, verse 9. You can go to that. It says, I will bring the third part of the people through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will, what will they do? Call on my name. That's a, a formal expression, a description of external worship, particularly temple worship. And I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. You see this beautiful, beautiful relationship being fleshed out in worship. Worship. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The worship of the pagans is a worship, has often been a worship that, that amounts to terror. But the worship of the believer is a worship that is the maintaining of relationship. We see again, and it bears repeating, though I think I've already said it maybe enough times, but temple worship is the formal maintenance of and enjoyment of the covenant relationship. That's what this is. So when you come here Sunday morning, know what you're coming to do. Know what this is. Therefore, to voluntarily neglect, it is a sin, it is a sin to neglect Sunday morning worship. To voluntarily neglect it, not only is it a sin though, but but it is by definition, we, we like to think, how many of us in the sins that we engage in like to think I can get away with it unscathed? Is that not 100% of us? Who of us ever engages in anything where we're pretty sure that's going to pretty much destroy me? Right? So when I eat a food I shouldn't probably eat, I think, I like to think every time that I can get away with it without it affecting me. That's what we do with sin. And, and a lot of times we think actually it's working, but the, but the Bible tells us it doesn't work. So if I'm neglecting Sunday morning worship and I think it'll be all right and I can escape unscathed, that is to doubt the authority of the word of God. And it is ultimately to spurn the covenant relationship 
that God himself is pursuing with his people. We come then in Old Covenant worship to the third point of four, the temple choir. In connection with Old Covenant worship, you get singing. Now, I'm not saying they didn't sing before, but boy, do you get singing with the Old Covenant. And with musical accompaniment, it was carefully provided for in the days of David as one of the, as one of the elements in calling upon the name of the Lord. What is singing? It's calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, it is also, as we'll see, a proclaiming of the word of God at, at times. So First, first Chronicles 16. David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to remember and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. On that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, he tells these Levites. Call upon his name. There is that call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. And then he tells them, I want you to say this. Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So David left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. With them were Heman and Yeruthan and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. All right, two things for us to see there. First, who, who, who could be in the choir? Everyone who was good enough? Skilled enough? No, only Levites. And the reason is because their task was to minister before the ark of the Lord. So no man from any other tribe of Israel, no matter how musically skilled or gifted he was, was allowed to sing in the, in the temple choir. Second, these choirs sang not just when everyone gathered at the temple, and not just on special occasions or feast days, they sang continually as every day's work required. So there were songs that accompanied specific offerings. So the Levitical choir would would sing in connection with certain offerings. The special role then of these Levitical and priestly choirs was to do what you all couldn't do. We're not allowed to do. We're not privileged to do. We're not permitted to do in your handout. And in so doing, to represent all of us unceasingly before the Lord. Not only did these choirs represent everyone else before the Lord, but they represented God to the people because that was their priestly role. 
You might begin to see why it used to be that maybe choirs wore robes. Maybe if you grew up in some more traditional churches, you might remember choirs wearing robes. Now, I'm not saying that's why they wore robes today, but where did robes first begin is another question. But here we have this priestly choir. And, and, and they represent God to the people because in the very act of thanking and praising the Lord, they're also prophesying to the people, exhorting them, admonishing them, encouraging, comforting them. And they're prophesying to the people with the word of the Lord. So First Chronicles 25, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service. Service is really a word for tabernacle worship. Some of the sons of Asaph, and of Haman, and of Yeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals, who prophesied. You don't prophesy to the Lord, but they prophesied to the people, even in giving thanks to and praising the Lord. So, let me just put it like this. The only way to understand the place of song in Old Covenant temple worship when, when we, we can only understand that when we understand the function of the Levitical singers as those who were divinely appointed. They didn't just sign up for the choir, right? No, God divinely appointed them to represent all the rest of the people who weren't allowed to be in the temple choir, to represent them in covenant dialogue with God, and even to represent God in covenant dialogue with his people. Now, none of that is to say that the rest of the Israelites, who weren't from the tribe of Levi, were never allowed to sing, right? We know that the Psalms were sung in Jewish homes every Passover. Psalms 113 to 118, the Egyptian Hallel. Uh, We know the Psalms were sung by the Jewish pilgrims as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for the annual feasts. And maybe they got together a choir, to, to, to sing on the way up, although I doubt it. I think it, that all, in that day, everyone sang. In that day, everyone sang. The only reason everyone didn't sing at the Tabernacle Temple Worship Choir because they didn't all have access. So the singing of psalms was an integral part of private and even of corporate external worship for every Jew. And I think that's a lesson to us. In the Bible, there's just this assumption that singing is a part of our private worship. And that's a conviction to me. I've, I go through, and, and, and I'm, you know, so we'll see this. The singing of psalms in temple worship, however, was not open to anyone but Levites. It was a priestly prerogative. Now, in the New Covenant, Where are these Levitical choirs fulfilled? Brothers and sisters, are you seeing this? Are you seeing why we, when we pour the footings, we're about to build a superstructure here. And it could perhaps be convicting, but also beautiful. The Levitical choirs are fulfilled in the singing of the whole congregation Because we are all now priests and Levites who minister before the Lord. 
you are by default member, uh, the, a member of the choir. Th- this is the choir. When we sing together in temple worship, we are a priestly temple choir. Calling upon the name of the Lord and also proclaiming the authoritative word of the Lord to ourselves and to one another. We're going to come back to that idea next week. But this is the vertical, up and down dialogue of worship. Now, membership, we know, in the Old Covenant Levitical choirs was hereditary. So you got to be in the choir if your father was descended from Asaph, Chimen, or Yeduthan. I, I don't like to say it, Jeduthan. It sounds so bad, but Jeduthan. Okay. So if you were descended from one of them, you were automatically in the choir. You got to be in the choir. We could think of these choirs in terms of a school or a guild of temple singers and musicians. But this specialized school of temple musicians has no equivalent today in New Covenant temple worship. Now, today, there are those of us who are more musically knowledgeable, and those may help the rest of us along as we sing together. It's nice that a lot of us know how to sing loud and on pitch and all that, and then the rest of us in the choir say, oh, I'm glad I have these people I can follow along with, and that's nice. But you're not a lesser member of the temple choir. You're an equal member of the temple choir. And so membership is no longer restricted to a few, but it's the privileged birthright of all. It's in that light then that we hear Paul's exhortation in Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And, he's, and this is primarily, Paul has in mind, the gathering of the Christians for temple worship. Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're going to come back to these passages next week to talk more about them. But singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So I just want to ask the question, what does all of this mean for special church choirs today. Now, all I'm going to observe at this point is that there is no biblical precedent. By precedent, I mean something in the Bible, uh, an an analogy, um, a theological principle, Um, that would be principle, a command for, for church choirs, which should be good news to us because not every church has a choir. And so that must mean that there is no... If there was a precedent in Scripture for church choirs, 
I would argue that every church ought to have church choirs and that those church choirs ought to be participating probably weekly. But there is not a precedent, there is not a command, and there is not a principle that specifically uh, would call us to have a weekly church choir. Now, on the one hand, we see that the temple choirs were rendered obsolete with the passing away of the Levitical priesthood. Now that we're all Levites, we're all members of the temple choir. So, on the one hand, they were rendered obsolete. On the other hand, they were fulfilled. And the singing of the whole congregation as a covenant community, does that word community mean something more to you now? Communal worship? Communal? Why did you need a Levitical choir? Because not everyone could enter the holy place in temple worship. We all enter the holy place now. Now we're all members of the priestly Levitical choir, and we all sing communally to the Lord. So what we need to see is that the choirs that we do have today are an inherently different thing than the Old Covenant Levitical choirs. Uh, I hope we get to see here that oh, see, we start to ask, now why do we do what we do? It doesn't mean that what we do is wrong. Some people are like, as soon as I ask why I do what I do, I'm going to throw it all away. That's not, that's not wise. But we need, to add, actually, we need to always be asking why we do what we do. So, in some more traditional churches, the choir might still sing weekly, or Andrea and I were remembering when, when we were both young, uh, maybe some of you remember, some of you might this sound really foreign to you, but the choir would process into the choir loft in front, and I did not grow up in a Catholic church, okay? Um, so the choir would process into the choir loft every Sunday before the service began, and they, if they didn't sing every week, they stood up there every week in choir robes. Mm. Now, once we get away from it, now we might start to think, that's strange. But, but once you're, when you're in it, you don't question it. You, and, you, you, and you think that, well, of course, this is what we do. We process in and we wear our robes because I, I don't know all the reasons. I can maybe think of some biblical rationale for it. But is it rooted in a theology of worship? This raises the question of when and how these special New Covenant temple choirs, when I refer to a temple choir, I'm referring to the choir that, 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 in, that does what it does in external temple worship, Sunday morning, that's the temple choir, you could say a special temple choir. It raises the question of where they first, how they first came into being. And so, uh, taking from a church history book, in the 4th century... After the emperor Constantine's conversion, and, and no, for those in Sunday school, I'm not blaming Constantine. I'm just saying that this happened. After his conversion, Christian worship began to be influenced by imperial emperor protocol. So incense, which was used as a sign of respect for the emperor, began appearing in Christian churches. Um, was, that, was that the unforgivable, unpardonable sin? No. As soon as you had incense in worship, did that mean that your worship was, was apostate and you were all going to hell? No. 
Should we introduce incense into our worship services? Is that consistent with a biblical theology of worship? That's where we need to think more deeply. Officiating ministers, who until then had worn everyday clothes, began dressing in more luxurious garments. Uh, that set them apart, really, in, in terms of their wealth, their prestige. Um, <clears throat> likewise, a number of, now this always gets me, gestures or gestures, gestures, right? Gestures. Indicating respect, which were normally made before the emperor, now became part of Christian worship. Is it, is it a sin to make the sign of the cross? Now, not that wasn't necessarily a sign of respect for the emperor, but it was a gesture that they made. Is it a sin to do that? No, but is it rooted in a theology of worship? Could it be a sin to do that? Yes. The custom uh, was also introduced of beginning services with a processional. Choirs were developed partly in order to give, a, to give body to that procession. And in fact, through the development of choirs in connection with this development of an imperial type of worship, um, the congregation came to have a less active role in worship. And remember, in the Old Covenant, the Levites had the more active role in worship because everyone else couldn't enter the holy place. The new covenant comes, we're all now members of the temple choir. But then something happened. Choirs were introduced again, and a corollary of that began to be, it doesn't make the choirs themselves wrong, but it began to be a a lesser involvement of the congregation. And in fact, the question arises, why in temple worship will we not all sing together? in keeping with the communal nature of worship, and in keeping with our privileged birthright in the temple choir. This becomes a question that we we have to ask, that we think of in terms of of a theology of worship. Now, uh, this is questions to ask. This is not about legalism. It's not about judgmentalism. And in fact, if, if if you, I'm, you know, we, we have a choir on Christmas Sunday and Easter Sunday. That's also the Sunday that we have a children's choir, that we have often historically had more specials, and that, I, that we do not celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, we generally invite a lot more unsaved. It has a different flavor and feel than the rest of our services in the year. And so I, I tend to treat those two Sundays of the year differently. Um, so, so again, this is not about legalism. It's about thinking through biblically and theologically what should external temple worship look like. And by the way, no one in, well, people do. That's wrong. I'm, people enjoy choirs more than I do, but I really enjoy going to hear a good choir sing sacred music. It's a beautiful thing. It's internal worship for me. Um, uh, now, the question then is how this all fits into external temple worship. So we, 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 we put this theology of temple choir to work in our theology of temple worship. 
This is, this is the work that Christians need to do. Now, let's take it to another side. We live in a day when singing, if we've got the traditional element of the days when you had the choirs in choir robes singing every week, there's the other side of it today. Because it's like, we could say, that's the godly route. That's when we were godly, right? When we had choirs in, church ro- in choir robes singing every week. Uh, but, but, the, but then there's the other side, and that is the uh, singing today, which is the domain of pop stars who uh, we, we generally associate singing with polished, choreographed entertainment. We'll come back to worship teams. And I'm not judging every single worship team. I don't prefer the phrase in light of my theology of worship. But I'm not judging the phrase. I'm not judging those who use it. We will not use the phrase worship team here just because of me. I, I, don't, I, I feel like it doesn't fit a, bit, a theology as well as it, as it should. But a lot of worship teams today are accompanied by lights and smoke and cool-looking people playing cool-looking instruments and all of this kind of stuff. Gone are the days, and we can't get it back, I don't think. I'm not saying we should. But let's just acknowledge the days are gone of folk songs. When people had a shared experience of life. And how did they share their experience of life? By sharing a tradition of folk songs that they all sang from the peasant to the, the wealthy. They all knew these songs and everyone was singers. Everyone was singers. Today we have this idea that only a few are singers. But everyone was singers because they grew up. They grew up learning to sing. They grew up learning to do that. And then they had these songs that were fitted to the various activities of each day and season. So if it's harvest time, you've got songs for harvest. If it's laundry day, right, you might have a song for doing the laundry. Today, singing is thought to be mainly for those talented in singing. But in the Bible, song is a gift that God has given to us all and that we are all commanded to participate in together. Which is why the volume of the worship team is a matter that ought to be rooted in a theology of worship. What you set the soundboard at in the back in terms of volume should be decided based on a theology of worship. See, and this is why sometimes we say, well, it's too loud for me, but that's just my preference. Well, obviously the Bible did not say, set the dial at this number for it to be biblical worship. That's legalism. But where we do choose to set the volume of the person leading or the team leading or the instruments leading will and must be rooted in a biblical theology of worship. It's not just a matter of personal preference. It's not just a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of God's word. Again, will I go to a church and judge them because it was just barely too loud That's a bad church. No, even if it's way too loud, will I be judging all their hearts? No. I might critique their theology of worship or what I understand is a lack of theology of worship. 
But will I say, I think you don't love Jesus? Or I think you're not even a Christian? No. As Christians, then, in your handout, we are all members together in the temple choir. We see in that the covenantal, going back for our footings, the covenantal and the communal nature of worship. Every Sunday, what do we do? We want to celebrate the communal nature of worship by all of us singing together in the temple choir. Because we are all privileged to enter the holy place and lift up our voices in song before the ark of the Lord. Okay, now, lastly, and most briefly, omnipresence and special presence. There's a sense in which all of life should be consciously lived in the presence of God. Why? Because God is everywhere. And that's the reality that leads us to all of life being worship. If God is everywhere, and he's everywhere I am, then my whole life should be an expression of worship. But the problem is, people don't have a good theology of special presence. A lot of people get omnipresence, and that's why they say, I don't need to be in any particular place to worship, because God's everywhere. Well, that's good theology as far as it goes, but then it's bad because it doesn't go far enough. The very fact of temple worship. What is the temple? It's God's what? The temple is God's what? House. The very fact of temple worship requires the doctrine of God's special presence. So God assured King Solomon after the dedication of the temple. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So let me ask you this question. Where, where is it especially right and appropriate for you to call on the name of the Lord? Where is it especially right for you to do that? And the answer is, at that place where the name of the Lord is. At his house. A common theme, therefore, in the Old Testament is that of carefully, in your handout, approaching or drawing near. Here's another category for you to think of this time in. When you come to Sunday temple worship, what are you doing? You are approaching. Do I want to approach late? Do I want to approach casually? We are drawing near unto God's special presence at his temple. God says in Jeremiah, I will bring near their leader and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools 
but they do not know they are doing evil. Hebrews 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. The doctrine of God's special presence, that he is in some places in a special way that he is not in other places, that's a mystery. But his special presence requires that special external temple worship that is a drawing near unto God at specific times and specific places, not specific buildings, but where the people of God are gathered, as well as in specific ways. Isaiah prophesied about new covenant worship, but he used old covenant language. Isaiah 56, Even foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now, stop. Is he saying that one of the things they're going to do in my house is have prayer meetings, and then they're going to do a whole bunch of other different things? No, God is saying that my house is, that's what it is. It's a house of prayer, which is to say, worship. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And so here it is that we see that prayer is a synonym for worship. The worship that God's covenant people offer up to him when they draw near to him at his house. So I want to close by exhorting us with these words of scripture. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, let us see the glory, the beauty of temple worship, of being members in the temple choir, of understanding the communal nature of worship and the joy that is. And Lord, as we understand the beauty and the joy of it, help us to understand the rightness and the obligation of it. Lord, convict us of our sin, of the ways that perhaps we have all, every single one of us here, have all viewed this time in a way that is not befitting of what it is or of the teaching of your word. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to distinguish between the, 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 the faulty idea of personal preference when in fact those issues of personal preference need to be rooted in biblical theology. I pray, Lord, that you would also help us as we engage in the work and the effort and the joy of developing a biblical theology of everything, a theology of revelation, a theology of worship, a theology of all parts of our lives, of what we read, of what we put on, of, of what we listen to. I pray that as we work diligently to do that, that we distinguish between that and, and a legalistic judgmentalism of people's hearts. Teach us how not to be so afraid of legalism that we fail to have a theology that works itself out and that must work itself out in the volume on our soundboard. In the things we choose to do while we're engaging in worship. In every part of our lives. Please help me, Lord. Help me to model this in my own life. And I pray that again, as we do this, ultimately, the church is strengthened and you are exalted in the way that you have commanded us to exalt you in your word. Thank you that you are worthy, that you are good, and that all of your ways are right. We pray that you enable us to see that rightness and that beauty every week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.